This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. don't say the numbers because I want to be able to like swap them and put them where I want to go. Right. This uh, project has definitely required flexibility. <laughs> yes. Thank you for that. Otherwise we couldn't do it, but it is uh, essentially we're, we're aiming to cover like one exoneration case, which uh, has proven to sometimes entail more than one exoneree. Right. Correct. And then also um, to highlight uh, someone who went missing at Christmas, a missing person's case, right? Yeah. Uh, with the theme of a home for the holidays with exonerees that hopefully got to spend uh, that first year that they finally were exonerated home for the holiday. And then uh, with a wish that all the missing people that, uh, well, all of them, overall, but also we're concentrating on the ones that were missing at Christmas, uh, make it back home for the holidays and however that can be accomplished. Yeah. And so we're pretty deep into that at this point. Today, we actually kind of converge, like the the exoneree and the missing person kind of take place in, in similar areas. Today's missing person is an interesting one. She pops up a lot of different places. Uh, she goes into NamUs January 14th of 2010, but she's missing. This is MP4732. She's missing out of Pierce County, Washington on December 25th of 1999. And with her, I'm going to spend a little more time on her than I have some of the other missing persons because somebody had a pretty cool write-up and I'll credit them in a minute. So this is a, a Caucasian female. When she goes missing, she's 17 years old. She's five foot tall, weighs 100 pounds. Uh, she has blonde hair, blue eyes. And the city she goes missing from is Tacoma, Washington. Uh, today, we're, we're mentioning Tammy Faye Kowalchuk. And she's got quite a few entries on the internet 
And I wondered, so this girl's 17 years old. And, I, you know, Charlie Project has her. The local Crime Stoppers up there, which is Tacoma, Pierce County, they have her. Tacoma Police Department still has a page for Nick McHazer, Namus Hazard, Q13, which is the Fox affiliate up there. They have a couple articles about her. She shows up in the newspaper because she's a 1999 case and sort of pre-popularity on the internet. And then I, I pulled up the Charlie Project because it has the strangest entry for a 17-year-old. Uh, it's all the same information that I just gave you. If, if she were alive today, she was born... In 1982, so August 16th, 1982, she'd be 41 years old today. But the uh, medical conditions for Tammy's page say that Tammy suffers from attention deficit disorder, ADHD, and other behavioral issues. And she has a history of methamphetamine abuse and can be violent. I thought that was interesting for a 17-year-old. Right. So I don't actually know if I make the comments. I try not to make a lot of comments, but... Um, my experience is that a lot of kids that have a tendency to not be, like, people pleasers. I mean, I don't want to call them troublemakers, but, like, kids that... Um, march yeah, to their own drum. They're Yeah, they march to their own drum. A lot of kids like that, um, they get diagnosed or labeled as being ADD or ADHD, right? I'm not a doctor. I have no idea if they actually are or not, right? But I see a, um, and this is from like my own life experience as well as like the thousands of missing pe persons cases that I've looked at. A lot of these runaway kids, it's almost like they just slap on the attention issues, right? Like the label of it? The label, well, I mean, I assume that there was a diagnosis, right? So it's not just somebody saying that she's ADHD, like she was actually diagnosed as that. However, what I found is uh, that diagnosis is handed out a lot. It, you know, because it comes up in school, right? Uh, when kids cause problems in class, they're immediately like uh, sent to be checked for that, right? Yeah, I and I don't know if it's the same now. It definitely was this way in the time she would have been going through it. Right, exactly. That's what I'm kind of going off of. So, like, basically any of the kids that um, sort of, you know, wouldn't be quiet or, like, couldn't sit still, um, there were certain characteristics that stuck out and teachers would refer them to the like guidance counselor or whatever. And then guidance counselors would talk to parents, parents would take them to doctors and suddenly all the kids are on Adderall. Right. Yeah. One thing for sure is if you weren't ADHD before you were a child put on Adderall, you certainly were ADHD after because uh, if you don't need it, it it actually makes you more hyper, right? <laughs> yeah, it does a lot of things. Anyway, um, and so it's interesting. Uh, now, the you said that uh, she had possibly been using meth, right? Well, that's what it says on the Charlie Project profile. And I wondered if that had something to do with her medication or if she was one of those kids that was diagnosed as being ADHD prescribed medication. She wasn't ADHD. It didn't have the desired effect, but she got hooked and wanted more. Right. 
Could be. Um, because that, I, I don't know that that's common, but I do know that like anytime that, um, you know, a stimulant's being used where it's not needed, uh, it, it has that addictive quality where you just want more and more and more of it. I was, I was, I bring all that up because I feel like her missing persons case, like almost immediately got a bad rap, right? It totally did. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I was bringing her up and I'm actually going to go a little deeper into her case. You're totally right. Did you have more on that? Well, no, I, I just, this happens to be one of those, um, I don't know that I comment on it. I don't know that it makes it into the show, but I hate it when I see these, um, especially in the nineties, it seems to be really prevalent. These, uh, youngish, uh, they're usually, you know, teenagers, 16, 17, where they're not an adult, but they're not really a little child. Um, and they, they are slapped with the label of having, um, you know, some sort of attention issue and, uh, medicated, and then they run away. Now that we're in 2023, I think it's pretty safe to say um, it's unlikely, in my opinion, that this child just ran away. Yeah. Okay. So back to Charlie Project for a second. They add something in here I haven't seen a lot of other places, but I've seen it other places, just not all of them. It said Tammy may use the first names Tabitha or Tamira, and she's a tattoo of a teardrop under her right eye. And I'm going to give this description because this is going to tie into uh, what you're saying. And, and I'll say this, like, according to this and according to other sources that I've read, she definitely was diagnosed with a couple of things. And she was definitely, at, at least at first, being given medications from, like, a psychiatrist with some oversight. What's wild about her to be 17 is, like, one of the first things you'll find if you go looking for her, she has multiple mug shots. So she's 17, multiple mug shots and mug shots that are released, which is that really doesn't happen in most jurisdictions today. Juvenile mug shots stay juvenile mug shots and they stay behind the veil of like juvenile uh, secrecy or seal in a lot of jurisdictions. Here's the details of, of the disappearance from Charlie Project. And then I'm, I'm going to switch over and I'm going to talk about something else with her before we get into today's case. Tammy was last seen getting into a small white car outside her family's home on East Morton Avenue in Tacoma, Washington on December 26, 1999. Now, depending on where you read this, that date has a little flexibility to it from what I've seen. Does that make sense? Yes. Because I've seen it as December 25th, 1999. And then she's, here's what what I think happened there. I think she's last seen on December 25th, 1999, but she calls home either that night or the next night, December 26th, 1999. And I think it gets mixed up in some of the short summaries on her case. She called her mother later that evening. And again, this is Charlie Project saying it's on December 26th. And, and Charlie Project is a great source. And also it's a great time of year. Like they take donations for the work that they do. There's a tremendous amount of work that goes into the Charlie Project. They're a great resource for all types of true crime content creators. Uh, generally speaking, they have the sources right there where you can go check them. So if you want to support somebody during the holidays, Charlie Project is a great one to do that with. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. I know at some point um, this was uh, – Charlie Project was largely done by one person. Yes, yes. It, her uh, name is Megan. 
Yes, the, the, uh, it's morphed a little bit over the years as things happen when they grow. But yes, uh, Charlie Project was started by and run by like a single person. And it, it is an absolutely brilliant website. I'm sure everyone is mostly aware of that by now if you're listening to other true crime stuff. But it is, it is a brilliant website to get quick, like real easily digestible information, particularly in complex cases like Tammy's case where you can see the sources and you can find your own sources based on the information they're putting together. That's one of the reasons I reference them here is because I do want people to be aware of them and support them. They've been around for a really long time and uh, they're really awesome. I consider it to, it's just second to name us. And actually sometimes I think I found stuff to be uh, incorrect on name us that was correct on Charlie project. Yeah. I mean, in, in my opinion, they're always a great first or second source. I mean, well, you have know. to you think gotta... about it, though, um, knowing that there was one person who did it, because I've read, like, some of her story and, you know, the reasons behind it and everything. And you have to think about NamUs being, like, this government-run entity and then, like, Charlie Project being this, like, single-source database. And they're kind of right together, which is amazing, because, you know, how many people work on NamUs, right? Yeah, it's not one. I'm sure of that. And like you said, like I, I haven't looked in a while. So I, I believe that more than one person are involved in it now, but I know at first it was this huge project for one person. Yeah. And she has a really unique backstory. Her name is Megan Good. She's from Ohio and uh, you can go on to Charlie Project and you can, you can read up on her whole story there. Uh, she's tied to Jennifer Mara, who was the founder of the Missing Persons Cold Case Network, MPCCN. That's what came about before the Charlie Project. She, she has a really cool story, and she guest posts different places. Her her blog posts are cool to read. Her I, I think you can go to like Charlie Project, and maybe there's an About Megan at the bottom. You can click on that, and then it'll it gives you more links where you can go and read about her. She's a fantastic person to support in the true crime arena. If that's something that you do, it's the holiday season. So I thought I'd throw that in there as we're talking about Tammy. So back to Charlie projects, Tammy uh, description here. She called her mother later that evening. She said with a truck driver, she was with a truck driver. She knew the man named Tony quote, Tony. She asked if she could come home and get some extra clothes so she could join him on one of his long hauls. Tammy's mother said no, and she told her to come home because Tammy had a court-ordered 10 p.m. curfew. Tammy never made it home, and she's never been heard from again. Now, the continuing description here, which the page notes that it's been updated eight times since uh, October 12th, 2004. It was last updated November 30th, 2017, when they added in the, the, the medical conditions and they updated the details of disappearance. So this is some information I'm about to give you that's been put in later. Tammy had been troubled since childhood. She went, ran away frequently. She was expelled from multiple schools and eventually got diagnosed with ADHD and other behavioral problems. She started abusing methamphetamine and turned to prostitution. Again, this is a 17-year-old. Eventually, Tammy was sent to Echo Glen Children's Center, a facility for troubled children, and she improved while she was staying there. She disappeared shortly after her release from the facility. Because of her history, Tammy's family did not report her missing until 2004. It's possible that she ran away, but authorities can't find anyone who's had contact with her since 1999. Foul play is possible in her case. So basically, 
she disappears. The family is not sure what to do with her because this is not brand new to them. She also has court restrictions on her. So they actually wait until the court restrictions expire before they even report her missing. At the time that they end up reporting her missing, Tammy would be 21 turning 22. And it's a, it's a wild case. Uh, I've, have you read about her before? Yes, I have. Cause she came up for us. Um, she had some proximity to Israel keys and some other stuff we've done. And over the, like, I don't, you know, we didn't, we didn't even end up doing this. I, I totally forgot the years just flown by. Uh, you and I have like a lot of experience with Gary Ridgway. A lot of research has been done. And originally there was going to be a Ridgway series in 2023 and it isn't, it didn't happen at some, we've done all the recording. We've done all the work. I was going to um, say it didn't happen. No. <laughs> I can't even remember. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I guess uh, that'll be something in the future possibly. Yeah. So uh, she comes up in the, in the course of like some people's uh, conversations there. Now I don't normally do this. I used to do this, but I, I don't normally do a lot of this, but there's a person on Reddit that did a write up on her. And it ties into a couple other things. And I figure people got a little more time because it's the holiday times. And I am just going to – I'm going to use this as a source that I I share with you because I was actually looking at, uh, for for a video project, a completely different thing. I was looking at a, a missing persons case that has some proximity to her. And when I was looking at that, one of the rabbit holes I went down is the same rabbit hole this person went down. They did a little bit better job writing it up, and they like they got some best of nominations in 2020 on uh, the Reddit sub post Unresolved Mysteries. The username is Quirky Motor, and I'm I'm just mentioning this here because it's a, it's actually a pretty fascinating write up and. We have a moment. We're in Washington for all the stuff we're doing today. And this person nailed some things that uh, I had been looking at. There's one major error they make, and there's one interesting thing in here. But uh, I'm going to talk about those. I was just going to kind of present it to you, Meg, and see what you thought of it. So the title of this is a a, a flared or marked as a disappearance. It has five missing women, one unknown subject. Who is the unknown predator stalking the Pulia Up Avenue area of uh, Tacoma, Washington? And has he abducted five plus women? This is an extensive write-up. And it's real easy to find under quirky-motors. Uh, home, like it's a submitted page on their profile for Reddit. Background. From 1994 to 2010, Five women were all abducted or otherwise vanished from a specific area of Tacoma, Washington. Law enforcement thinks that a single perpetrator is to blame, and the missing women have subsequently been named the Tacoma Five. Very little is known about these women, even less is known about their disappearances. What happened to these people? Did they simply move on? Were they victims of notorious killer Gary Ridgway? More on that below. Are drugs, alcohol, or domestic violence to blame, or is there really an unidentified predator stalking the streets of Tacoma, Washington? Even law enforcement isn't sure. These are the stories of the Tacoma Five. 
it all started with the disappearance of Helen Irene Tucker. Quirky Motor makes a note here, just like in my other posts, I want this section to tell the women's stories in a respectful way, but I also wanted this section to be authentic. I don't want to sugarcoat any of these stories. For many of these victims, there's very, very little information available. Some of these victim stories are not very pleasant. And in a few cases from family and friends, uh, the information is unflattering or downright negative. Rather than skip these details or pretend these things did not occur, I chose to include them in the summaries below. I added as many positives as I could and tried, keyword tried, to shy away from information solely about appearances or criminal records, but sometimes no other information is available. I hope everyone can understand that my intention is to remember these people in their lives in the best way possible while realizing that not everything is positive. I ask for you... I ask you uh, only respect down in the comments. Thank you. This is a cool post. I, I bring it up because the first person is Helen Tucker. And Helen Tucker is a case that I've been chasing for a very long time. When I uh, get up and do new research without fail, she's the first tab that I see. I have uh, three tabs open on her that I've had open for many years. And it, I thought it was very interesting to see her mentioned on, online because I don't see her mentioned a lot of places, uh, but she is a story that I have uh, I've chased for a very long time. I've requested a lot of documents on, and the, there's just not much uh, that I've been able to get on her. But at some point, um, when I do finally get some more inroads there, I am going to cover her in a pretty in-depth way. So this section is called The Vanished, and I'm going to cover the first two of them. The first one is 27-year-old Helen Irene Tucker. She was a Washington native. Her mom described her as a happy baby, active child, and eventually a rebellious teenager. Her mother is Frida Gable, and she blamed herself for Helen's troubles and wondered what she'd done wrong as a parent. She now speculates that her daughter may have been abused as a preteen, which caused her to lash out. By the time Helen was a teenager, she was involved in sex work, but she was still in contact with her family, and she always called on birthdays and holidays. Helen was last seen in Tacoma in 1994 when she went to the police station to report that a customer had assaulted her. This was the last time anyone ever saw the 27-year-old. Helen struggled with addiction and homelessness, but she was regularly in contact with her family and her three-year-old son, who was being raised by a family friend. Helen first gets reported missing in 2000 after family members realized that she had not been formally reported missing. They mistakenly each thought that another relative had filed an official report. Helen's case was originally turned over to the Green River Task Force, who over time ruled out Gary Ridgeway and returned the file back to the Tacoma Police Department. Newer reports state that while law enforcement believes Tucker died at the hands of a separate predator, Ridgeway could not be conclusively ruled out. Helen was last seen on Puglia Up Avenue at what was then the BP station at Puglia Up and Portland Avenue. That's in Tacoma. There was one report that she was spotted in Colorado after her disappearance, but this has never been verified. Helen is described as a white female, 5'5", weighing 115 pounds. She has long brown hair and blue eyes. She usually wears jeans and long sleeve shirts. She has a tattoo on her upper right forearm of a rose that's covered with a snake and a dagger and a tattoo on her upper left forearm of a rose and a gnome. She's missing one tooth in the front of her mouth on her upper jaw. Tucker has a distinctive masculine walk. 
Some reports say she was 26 when she was last seen. She may use the last name Cook. Her mother, Frida Gable, was still looking for her at the time of this write-up. She remembers her daughter as an active tomboy who loved playing the drums. Um, so that's Helen's case. And she's not a Christmas case, but she is a case that like I think about often. In fact, when I like opened up, uh, I, I found an old Safari uh, browser. I had multiple uh things about how it opened all in one place, not just the normal stuff that I had that opens up. Uh, there's something about her that has always stood out to me and I can't explain it. There's just something about her. Like uh, she has this missing persons uh, thing on crime stoppers and Tacoma Pierce. There's something about her face that looks really familiar to me. And she has the look of like kind of Joan Jett in a mugshot that she has. And something about her makes me think that, like, I could do something for her case. So that's why I'm mentioning her here. Now, the second one, five years later, in 1999, Tammy Faye Kowalchuk, age 17, disappeared. She does a similar write-up to what we just talked about. This one has some interesting details, and most of them seem to be double verified, so we're going to use them. Um... Tammy wasn't dealt an easy hand in life, and like Hunter, Kowalchuk was from the Tacoma area. She had been diagnosed with ADHD and several other behavior problems. Uh, Tammy struggled with academics. She once claimed that she had been expelled from every elementary school in Tacoma. Tammy struggled with addiction to methamphetamine, which her mother, Cindy, believes that Tammy used as a way to self-medicate, which was what you were describing, Meg. But the drugs made Tammy violent and unpredictable. And she soon began working the streets. It is believed she was lured into her high-risk lifestyle by a, quote, boyfriend slash pimp as a teenager. After getting arrested for drug possession, Tammy gets sentenced to time at Echo Glen, which is the facility for uh, children and juvenile offenders. Her life began to look up. She had help at the facility. She learned to read. She learned to write. Uh, she and her mother were getting closer, and her mother claimed that after her release, Tammy called regularly, despite still also regularly running away from home. Tammy was last heard from in December of 1999 when she was seen climbing into a small white car in the evening to go visit some friends. Later that night, Tammy informed her mother she was going to travel the country with a long-haul trucker named Tony, and she wanted to come by to pick up her clothes. Her mother reminded her that she had a court-ordered curfew and it wasn't a wise idea. When she didn't return home, Cindy looked for her. She drove Pulleyup Avenue and Pacific Highway South, which is the area of the Strip. Um, she was hoping to find her daughter working. She stopped and talked to a lot of people who knew Tammy by the street name Tamira, but no one had seen her recently. Tammy's never been seen again. One report says Tammy was not reported missing for four to five years. This writer says that uh, they could find no corroboration of this information, and I'm going to help them out. Um, there's definitely corroboration of that information. Because I went and found that they did not actually open a case into her in uh, until 2004. I found Tammy's case while I was hunting through Helen's case. And there has never been an investigator attached to Tammy's case. I'm just going to say that. Never. They have never attached an investigator to Tammy's case. They put her in a pile. And what I'm about to say is slightly contradictory to everything else I said about Tammy. 
reports say she was five feet tall and 100 to 110 pounds. But Cindy says that she is actually 5'8 and 100 to 110 pounds when she was last seen. And then she said that she frequently had animals that she would uh, interact with. And she wanted people to know that. And the writer here includes that, that note that Cindy has also said. The primary suspect in her disappearance, and the reason she has no investigator, is because she is on the Green River Task Force list. I don't know how all that times out, but that's where she is. She's more likely than Helen. Helen, I don't uh, have questions about whether Helen's involved there. Now, the other people that are on here, we've talked about them on the show before. Jennifer Inyart is another one that Quirky Motor talks about. Uh, Deborah Ann Honey Hooks is on here. Uh, and Daniel uh, Moten is on here. We've talked about all of these. Um, they're all Washington area missing persons that have come up before. And it's not that I'm cutting those people short. It's that for the purposes of time, um, uh, I'm kind of moving this on to like the, the discussion part. Uh, and you can, again, you can find this under quirky dash motor on Reddit. The Tacoma five are only five of Pierce County's 146 missing women as of this write up. So why has law enforcement bundled these cases together? The author says, as far as I can tell, the only thing these women have in common are the areas they frequented, frequented, the fact that none of them have ever been found in their lifestyles. All five women had histories of homelessness, sex work, or substance abuse, but most importantly, all women were last seen or known to frequent specific areas of Tacoma. This has led some to believe that law enforcement has additional information that links the cases of these five people together. They vary in race, age, and appearance. Honey Hooks is... 41, uh, Jennifer Enyard is 16. I wish people would stop including her in these things. Um, Kowalchuk, Honeyhooks, and Tucker are thin. Molten is heavier. Some of these women are black, white, multiracial. It does not appear they knew each other or ran in the same circles. Uh, they've disappeared years apart. Some people think the cases are not related and that different fates befell each of these women. Investigators have never revealed why they believe one perpetrator is to blame for all five disappearances. Another facet of that story is the fact that Gary Ridgway is a suspect in some of the cases. Ridgway's plea deal did not cover Pierce County. Does that make sense to you, Meg? Yeah, because that means he's not going to confess to it. Right. So he never wanted to admit to things he had done in Tacoma, but law enforcement was always pretty sure he had committed crimes in Pierce County. Uh, in articles on this case, law enforcement says they do not believe Ridgeway was responsible for these specific disappearances, but then turn around and admit that they can't rule him out. The, the women for the general description of the women that, you know, Ridgeway would victimize so there's always that possibility. Now, another lesson that can be learned from the Green River Killer investigation that she brings up here, which might provide insight into this case, is the fact that some women who had disappeared, especially those with high-risk lifestyles, were placed on the Green River victim list only for them to surface later working in a new town or existing under a new name. And I'm just going to point this out, that one of the people, and I, I, I don't, maybe I've said her name before, I'm, I'm going to list five more names of the 10 names I've listed today. I've verified that one of these people is alive. It's sometimes hard to determine if adults fall off the radar or family or of family or friends, or if they meet a far worse fate. It's a possibility that happened in the case of the Tacoma five as well. And another theory brought up online of the Tacoma five is that they're not related at all, but it's a 
ploy perpetrated by the police in order to garner media attention to get people talking about the cold cases. Some people think that is uh, that this is a possibility of serial killers and mysteries are more intriguing than run-of-the-mill missing persons cases. That's an interesting thought, and the author says that they believe it's far-fetched. I think that's pretty far-fetched. Uh, the opposite is what I find to be true. They will talk about the possibility of it being a serial killer, but if you read the whole article, at the end of most of those cases around the U.S., they will say it's not. Pro- it's probably not a serial killer. So then we have Margaret Diaz. She was 31. She went missing in 1988 in Tacoma. Shannon Pease, uh, 15. She actually was found dead in 1988. Tracy Wooten uh, was... 26 when she washed up on a beach in Tacoma in 1990. Lisa Shear, she was 32 when she went missing in 94. I don't think Lisa's ever been found. Uh, Stephanie Gay Miles, uh, she was last seen alive in September of 1994. And uh, she's been reported missing since then. She was known to frequent these areas around this. Anyways, I wanted to bring Tammy up today. And then I wanted to mention this. Um, I've actually never heard um, any sort of reference to the Tacoma Five, I believe is what you said. That's what she says here. She calls them the Tacoma Five. Um, I've actually never heard um, that mentioned, which um, that doesn't mean anything. It seems like it would have come up when I was researching Ridgeway. Basically, I would say any anybody, um, that all the things that you're mentioning there, that was a pretty wide um time period, right? Over all those victims. Um, And I would say that anybody that went missing, any female that went missing in the 80s or possibly the 90s as well, who had an association with drugs and being a sex worker, it's a a good possibility that it was uh, Gary Ridgway. It uh, is not impossible that it was not him, right? Yeah. A lot of women who have uh, drug issues that work as a sex worker to get money to support their drug issues, uh, they unfortunately uh, meet their demise that way, right? And a lot of those cases, I feel like, actually, I don't have any information to corroborate a lot of them. However, the impression I've gotten over time is I feel like a lot of sex workers who end up being killed by one of their customers, I feel like their customer, it's a one-off and it's because something got out of hand for some reason. And I don't know if you've ever considered that or not, but that puts a kink into like the whole, cause I also feel like, I mean, Gary Ridgway is a prime example, you know, according to his confessions, he killed a lot of sex workers, right? Yes. Okay. And so, you know, when you think about it that way, I would say it's almost like a 50, 50 chance that it would be a one-off or, you know, a serial killer. But I don't think, Oh, and this is just me thinking and, I might change my mind, but I don't think that any women that disappeared in the 80s and 90s that um, remain unaccounted for that have this similar attributes, I don't think they're going to have been killed by a different serial killer. 
in uh, this area, in this small little area that we're talking about here in Washington, uh, that aren't already accounted for? I, well, I will say because of research in that area in particular, and because I know of several different serial killers operating very close to each other in at least three jurisdictions around the U.S. at approximately the same time, I'm going to go with, I, I might disagree with you if I saw some evidence of it. But I, on the surface, I definitely agree with you. And I think that it's more likely you've got a couple one-offs here lumped into it and maybe a Ridgeway victim than, than you having a new predator who has taken these particular people. Does that make sense? That's exactly that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, yeah, I, I think that's more likely. But like, if they brought me some evidence and they said, "Look, man, it's the same white car in the same truck every time. It's the same guy. He like picks them up. The white car goes back to this little house. They walk across the street. They get into a big cab. They disappear and they're never seen again." Then I would be like, "Okay, well, that is a you know, if it's a truck driver killer that who stops at that place and time and, and grabs somebody, I believe that." Because those guys are hard to track. We don't know a lot about the, the truck driver killers in our in our world. Well, I would say that, again, while I'm sure there are predators, there's also a situation where, you know, it could still be a one-off and you've got a variety of, uh, you know, truck drivers, like you said, and I'm not trying to stereotype them. It's just, it's what's out there, right? Yeah. Um, where a one-off occurs. And I feel like a lot of times, except for the panic that sets in afterwards, I'm not even sure it would be like, it, it certainly wouldn't be like first degree murder, right? It's, it's some sort of thing that happens kind of specifically because something gets out of hand, right? Oh, I would definitely agree with that. Um, but I want to point out, since we are uh, specifically talking about Tammy uh, today, I, I just want to point out because we're talking about it, uh, and we're we're talking about Tammy specifically today. Um, Tammy was not a sex worker. Tammy was a child, and it's not possible, contrary to what anybody else says. You know, a seventeen-year-old that has been called a sex worker is actually a child who's being abused. And yep. I don't know. Um, I know that there's a callousness that has grown over. Um, I, I feel like it's actually much better now than it would have been in like the nineties. Right. Yeah. But this is not a case where, um, it is accurate to say that uh, she was a sex worker. It's incorrect. Um, and, you know, I guess people could have other opinions about that. I don't really care. My mind's pretty made up. Um, it's not possible for a child to choose to be a sex worker. One of the interesting things about Tammy's case, is of, Tammy's case over the years is I can't even pull her criminal record. Like, when I go to find her criminal record, she's a juvenile. 
Well, right, which is exactly why you can't get it. But, you know, kind of based on just the circumstances of her um, surrounding her disappearance, um, you know, it's concerning that it took so long for them to, you know, for her to be reported missing. Wait, was that her or was that on Yeah, that's that's her. Five years. Okay. Um, That's concerning it makes me wonder, like, well, did she really talk to her mother um, that much, right? Uh, because you either got a man named Tony, who is a truck driver, who needs, you know, he's relevant, right? Yeah. Or she went off with Tony and life went on and something else happened to her, right? Yeah, I wondered if she didn't. Okay, so this is one possibility I considered here. If she went back and reported her missing, because... I have read that, you know, I've seen the case numbers on her. So I know there exists an 04 file. If she was reported missing earlier, I think I would see it. Like if there was a 99 or a 2000. Where I might not see it is if it were after October 2001. When they knew, when they thought Ridgeway was ramping up again and they started locking everything down... A lot of local Pierce County stuff, um, King County stuff, ended up, like, for women who matched this, they went to the FBI for a while. And she would have fallen into that category because she was underage. So she also has a Nick McEntry. It doesn't change my opinion of the dates, but there is a possibility that, like, the well, the other possibilities you're just completely right and mom was not paying as as much attention as as could have been you know possible i think that i think that it's um pretty obvious just from everything that's been mentioned uh her mom considered her a difficult child right correct i can see where that might happen in a moment and you be like well good riddance until you're difficult child doesn't show back up right and then you're like well wait a second what happened and then you know it's awful it's like every mother's worst nightmare and i have no idea i don't know what happened there it's so i'm interested to know i actually i don't think that she would have been gary ridgeway's victim uh but i think it's offset because of the whole like tony situation yeah i but but I just want to point out, um, and I'm sure it hasn't aired, but I mean, I know it hasn't aired. I I completely forgot that hadn't aired. But when we did our extensive research on Gary Ridgway, one of the things about him that was really important for me to sort of get across was Gary Ridgway killed a lot of really young girls. Uh, He did. uh, Ridgway is a particular type of animal. And I don't mean, like, he wasn't a pedophile. I mean, like, girls that were not 18 that are, uh, con- they're portrayed as have having been sex workers, right? Yeah. But that wasn't really the case. Some of his victims were older. And I mean, like, you know, in their 20s. But uh, to me, anybody under the age of 18, they're not actually a sex worker. They're a child that's being abused. Um, they, and, you know... It's actually society's job to help them and, you know, try and protect them and steer them away from this. 
but that's a whole different uh, subject, right? I have yeah. no idea if she was um, his victim or not, but I think that it... Do you have any idea? Like, so she had a, tear, a teardrop tattoo? Mm-hmm. And so did she kill somebody? No. I don't so think was, so. Well, isn't that like a whole thing that was in the 90s? I We have <laughs> talked about that before. I do not know how it would... Correlate there. Okay. Um, And anyway, so, you know, we don't know what her record was. Um, We know that she, I have a feeling this kid could hold her own, right? To an extent. Uh, Children who can hold their own are are females that can hold their own. Unfortunately, a lot of times they meet the wrong person, right? Yeah. They meet the person who, you know, can't tolerate it. I don't know that that's what happened here, but um, I certainly wish her case would be resolved. Uh, she's one that is constantly on my radar as well. I briefly thought about it with Ridgeway. There are too many other factors uh, for me to really consider it seriously, not to mention there's some ambiguity with regard to, you know, was he really operating that late? Right. Yeah. And so we just don't really know. Um, but I wish that something would come of her case. Uh, I had been looking. Have you ever looked through the unidentified people and uh, unidentified females in Washington? Are you being serious right now? I used to spend like days looking through them. Um, well, after I said that, I realized I don't actually <laughs> know. When I was looking for her, though, there were only 35 Um, There were only 35 unidentified bodies. Uh, Maybe, uh, I guess it must have been after 99 I was looking. And that's not very many. No, it's not very many, but I will just say. But it's also a lot. (laughs) Well, well, it's also in Washington. Correct. And I have run into problems with the record keeping in Washington that is its own podcast. Um, for a number of reasons, like I've, you know, I, I've had trouble there over the years getting records. They have very stringent public information rules, laws, statutes, policies, procedures, depending on where you're at. And they also didn't keep great records for a long time. So, I'll, you know, that's kind of where I'm at on that. But and I, I, I don't no. mean to steer away from her, but we have an exoneration in that area, too. Yes, that's correct. Um, I'm sorry. It wasn't from 99. It was total. That's all. There's only 35 out there. The for females in Washington that are yeah. unidentified, there are 35 in Namus. That's it. Yeah, I didn't think it was. I wasn't going to correct you there because I, I wasn't looking right a second. I believe that if you go, I think you'll find it's bad record keeping. It, well, it's possible, but it goes all the way back to 1954, and they're pretty consistent as far as entries. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying, to me, I was just surprised this was an example I can give where I can say, in investigating Tammy's disappearance for this episode, I was genuinely surprised at the uh, results of looking at unidentified bodies. I didn't find anything that looked like it could possibly be her. Gotcha. Well, so we're in, so that's a Tacoma, uh, Pierce County area. Where we're going today is 1917 in Spokane. This is an exoneration from 1920. Uh, the person was convicted in 1918 of manslaughter and sentenced to one to 10 years. 
Uh, race and age are unknown, but this was a female exoneree based on false accusations. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this. This deals with a couple of topics that, if you're squeamish, might not be for you. On November 18th of 1917, 16-year-old Faye Hamilton died in Spokane, Washington. Earlier that month, Hamilton had had an abortion procedure, and the county coroner concluded that complications from that procedure caused her death. Faye's attending physician, Dr. James Sutherland, and Maude Hines, a family friend and neighbor, both later testified that Faye told them just before she died that midwife Mary Swartz had used a catheter to perform the abortion at Anna Williams Sanitarium. On December 31st, 1917, Mary Swartz, who was a mother of eight, was charged with second-degree murder in Hamilton's death. Swartz denied providing any medical treatment to Hamilton, including performing this procedure. So Mary Swartz's case goes to a jury trial in the Superior Court of Spokane County in May of 1918. Deputy Prosecutor Harry Kinzel together with Chief Prosecutor John White, prosecuted this case. Attorneys W.C. Donovan and George Armitage represented Schwartz. Judge David Hearn presided over the trial. The prosecution said that Schwartz performed this abortion on Hamilton on November the 9th of 1917, while Faye Hamilton was a patient at this Williams Sanitarium. Mary Swartz testified she denied that she provided any medical treatment to Hamilton at all. Mary Swartz said that a man called her office on November 1st of 1917 requesting treatment for a girl who was, quote, in trouble. Swartz said that she declined to provide treatment, explaining that she did not perform these procedures. She testified that the same man came to her office a few days later with Faye Hamilton, whom she de he described as his niece. Mary said she again declined to treat Faye, and she asked the man to please leave. The man later returned alone, and he requested recommendations for private sanitariums where he could potentially place Faye. Mary testified that she told the man about Anna Williams Sanitarium. Mary testified that around 8 p.m. on November the 9th, Williams asked her to stop by the sanitarium, which she did about 20 minutes later. And she said that she was taken into a room that was occupied by Faye. According to Mary, three other women were in the room. Williams was there. So that's Anna Williams. Flora Hamilton, who is Faye's mother. And another woman whose name she did not know. Mary said that Flora Hamilton initiated a discussion of Faye's medical situation. And she told Mary that Faye had come to the sanitarium after a soldier had performed an abortion on her. Flora said that Faye had discussed other attempts at ending the pregnancy, including operating on herself, taking pills given to her by a physician, and swallowing turpentine. Mary said that she left the sanitarium after about 15 minutes of this conversation. Florence Regal, who was a resident at the sanitarium at the time, testified that she had opened the door and she had let Flora and Faye into the sanitarium on November the 9th. Florence later testified that she knew nothing about any kind of procedures being done on Faye. She only knew that Faye was sick. 
Now, the defense had planned to call Anna Williams as a witness, but she was unable to attend court that day because her father was dying. Flora Hamilton's testimony directly contradicted Mary's account of the events. Flora testified that she did not learn that Faye was in the sanitarium until November the 11th and that she had Faye discharged on November the 12th. She said she had not seen Mary at the sanitarium or anywhere else prior to the trial. She testified that she went to the sanitarium for the first time on November the 11th just after learning that her daughter had been admitted there. Hines then testified, this is Maude Hines, who's a family friend and neighbor. She testified that Faye's dying declaration identified Mary as the person who performed the procedure and said that it occurred at the sanitarium. On June 28th, 1918, the jury hearing this case found Mary guilty of manslaughter, and she was sentenced to one to ten years in prison. Mary told the judge, I am just as innocent as a newborn babe. They have convicted an innocent woman. Those who are guilty are walking the streets today with unstained character. So attorneys for Mary Swartz appealed. Her requests for a new trial included an affidavit from Maude Hines, where Hines identified herself as the other woman who was present when Mary had stopped by the sanitarium on November the 9th. Maude Hines said that she had accompanied Flora Hamilton to the sanitarium on November the 9th at the request of both Flora and her daughter, Faye. This new evidence contradicted Flora's testimony that she was not at the sanitarium until November the 11th and had never seen Mary before the trial. When Maud testified about Faye's dying declaration at the trial, she had not included in her testimony anything about her presence at the sanitarium on November the 9th. Based on the new evidence, the appellate court granted Mary a new trial on July 30th, 1919. The court set her retrial on October of 1919, but Mary's husband became very ill and the trial was delayed. Mary's husband died in December of 1919. So Swartz's second trial began on January 7th of 1920 before Superior Court Judge Hugo Oswald. Dr. Sutherland testified regarding Faye's death and dying declaration. Anna Williams testified that Mary did not treat Faye at the sanitarium, and a new witness who was a fellow patient at the sanitarium testified that Faye told her that a soldier had performed the procedure. Most significantly, Flora Hamilton testified that she had not provided truthful testimony at the first trial, which she attributed to her grief at the death of her daughter. She admitted that she had been at the sanitarium with Faye on November the 9th. And on January 14th of 1920, the jury acquitted Mary Schwartz. Uh, This is write-ups from Megan Barrett Casino. Uh, She's writing for the National Registry of Exonerations about this. What do you think of this one? It's an unfortunate case, right? Yeah. Because it's a situation where, uh, like, nobody wins, and it's terrible that the young lady went through that. It's terrible that, you know, there were charges made. The culpability for something like this, I I, I don't know. It just really, all of it really bothers me. Because, now, it was a long time ago, right? But it sucks that this is sort of where we were. Right. Yeah. Right. This is the hoops that someone has to jump through. Right. And then, you know, you face, of course, you know, uh, even if it, 
you know, you, you have the woman getting on the stand and I thought about her testifying saying, oh, I don't do that, right? And that's what she would have had to have done, right? And it didn't matter that she testified that way. I, I don't, I'm not saying she did it, but I'm saying like, that's what you would have had to have said. And, um, you know, I don't know. I had a lot of thoughts about life as we know it now. And it, it, it it's one of those things that it really checks off the, like, this is a big old waste uh, box, right? Yeah, it's terrible that Faye Hamilton died. It's terrible that Mary Schwartz is accused and imprisoned because of it. But it is, it does, it works out in Mary's favor, but, you know, it doesn't work out in Faye's favor at all. Right. And I feel like regardless of whatever your stance is on, you know, the fact that, uh, well, because she had an abortion, right? Correct. Um, regardless of whatever your stance is, I feel like everybody could agree like it shouldn't be a situation where the back alley type thing where you die from it right 100 percent agree yes and so i i can't even imagine even if you're pro-life like this is the death of a, a young woman who was who just couldn't handle being pregnant right and so it, you know how do you balance that well you know that's a question for way different podcast but i'm just saying i feel like everybody could agree like this is not the way it should be it it should have ever been right and it's hard to uh it's kind of hard to digest all of it it really is and you know I, it, trying to balance out these cases it, i wanted to have all the happy feel-good cases for the holidays but at the same time there are significant things that have happened over the years in terms of how our legal system works that have huge ramifications on other parts of our lives. And this is sort of an example of a nobody wins situation, but it's also, in my opinion, a really important part of American history, legally speaking. And I just wanted to bring her up today and to cover this one. There's not like, there's not a huge amount to talk about here. I don't think. No, yeah. not really. It's mostly the uh, it the thing that makes us the unique exoneration. I feel like is is the uh, alleged medical procedure that is leading to the allegation and everything that kind of unfolds with that. Right. That's so, what I. That's what I thought made it unique. Right. That's what I'm saying. It makes it a, a unique exoneration because of that. Um, but it also is like a heart wrenching story. I mean, it really is. Yeah, so today's story was two teenagers, and you know, one we don't know what happened to her, and one had a terrible tragedy. Um, that's all I got. You got anything else for this one? No, it's really a sad episode. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
All right. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. 
Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.